Hey, good morning and welcome to First. My name is Daniel. I'm one of our pastors. And man, I'm having a lot of fun with you this morning. You guys have been incredible so far today. We're eager to dive into week four of I Heart My Community. Now, I don't know about you, but when I run into a famous person, I can get a little bit weird. Is there anyone else out there like that? Where you like meet a famous person, all of a sudden you're 12 years old again? Like, that's me, totally. And I come by it very honestly because my dad is the exact same person way. And so a couple of summers ago, my dad was in a small diner in San Francisco in the month of June. And I'm going to show this picture. A group of really tall men come walking in with their security detail. And you can tell that the security guy is super pleased my dad is taking this picture. Because when you lean in a little bit more to the next picture, it is LeBron James and Darren Williams. You can go back to the next one for a second. Darren Williams, like for crying out loud, like my whole childhood just like, Dad, why do you get to experience this and not me? And so I was going nuts. I texted as many people as I possibly could in like two minutes, and I wasn't even there, and I was the one freaking out. But if you lean in one more time, you can see how pleased LeBron is that my goofy six-foot-six dad is taking this picture as well. Now, this is the way I get when I run into a famous person. I wanted to show a couple more people who are relatively famous and see who knows who. So check out this next picture. The guy pointing the finger up with the sunglasses on by a raise of hands. Who knows who that guy is? Awesome. So we've got a pretty good amount of people there. This is Bono, the lead man for U2. Album after album, song after song, not to mention all the humanitarian work that he's done in Africa and all over the world. Now, by a raise of hands, who knows the older looking man on the left? I got one. Awesome. That's kind of a cheat code, Christy, by the way. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, this guy, his name is Eugene Peterson. And a lot of folks may not know him, but he gave us this. No, Eugene Peterson did not write the Bible, but he translated all the original languages of Scripture into modern speech in a way that we can open up a book like this and understand in our own tone, in our own figures of speech, the Word of God. And you might be thinking to yourself, man, LeBron and Bono have done incredible things, both in sports and art and on a humanitarian level. But here's something that we've been leaning into and learning over the course of the past few weeks. Even if you live a life of obscurity, you can make an incredible impact. Now, Eugene Peterson, he never pastored a church of more than four to 500 people his entire life. And he left us an entire Bible translation. Come to find out, he and Bono became really good friends, and the first time that his students, Eugene Peterson's students, brought him a Rolling Stones magazine article about Bono talking about Eugene Peterson, he didn't even know who Bono was. And Bono tried to invite him out for lunch one time, and Eugene Peterson said no, because he had a book deadline on the book of Isaiah. <laughs> so they ended up becoming really, really good friends. But one of these things that we're learning here, and Eugene Peterson is a great example, and so many other people are as well, is this idea that our posture matters more than our position. Our posture matters more than our position. And so the question that we're asking today really is this, how's your posture? Now, I got to do something kind of goofy that we did last week because it meant a lot to me. So if you can just repeat after me this thing we did last week one more time. I love, okay, we're getting there, my community, 
Because God loves my community. All right, so now I'm going to do the thing where I social pressure you into doing that in a more robust way a second time, okay? Here we go. I love my community because God loves my community. Man, thank you so much for humoring me. It really just hits me real close down in the soul for you to do that. Now, that might seem really goofy to you, but it is really the heart of what we're trying to get at in this series. It's this idea that God loves the places where we live, work, and play so much, and so we should as well. Now, Nehemiah, we've been paying attention to his story because he had a heart for his hometown that was broken and in shambles, and he felt called by God to do something incredible and to rebuild the wall of a vulnerable ancient city in Jerusalem. So, but like all things we do for God's glory, we've been discovering that Nehemiah got all kinds of pushback and opposition, especially from these ringleaders, Sanballat and Tobiah. And they were doing all they could to discourage and distract and threaten the work that God was doing. And it was really affecting people, quite frankly. Last week, we talked about how these accusations that were coming from the outside for the workers in Nehemiah, it became an internal thing that they all started to believe. And I wonder, have you ever been there before? Maybe you've set apart to do something for God's glory. You stepped out in faith, felt opposition, and then all of those questions of doubt start to creep in. Questions like, well, am I good enough to do this? Questions like, are we strong enough to complete this task? Are we even right to be doing this? Did God even call us to do this in the first place? So really, before we dive into anything today, what we're asking is a simple question. If we believe that God has called us as people filled with his spirit to go out and bless the world, to be his presence, and we're experiencing opposition, the question is this. In the midst of all of that, how can we lead our communities to restoration? If we have this assurance in our hearts that God is with us, he's fighting our battles, he's for us, he wants to work through us, how can we help other people persevere in the work of restoring our communities? And we have a lot to learn from Nehemiah. So what I'd love for you to do is to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. It's in your Old Testament or you can flip to it on your phone. We're going to have it on the screen as well. But he keeps enduring more and more opposition as a leader. And all the people are enduring all this opposition. And it gets to this point where we get a snapshot of what Nehemiah, the leader, was like. So check this out from chapter 5, verse 14. It says this, and Nehemiah is talking in the first person here. He says, Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. And check this out. This is so cool. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work of this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. The thing you notice most clearly about this guy, Nehemiah, is that he leads from the posture of a servant. He has good posture. 
King Artaxerxes, he'd sent Nehemiah back to Jerusalem. And so from this place of being a governor, Nehemiah could have done whatever he wanted. He could have gotten away with having all the best food, all the best drink, all the best places to live. He could have just taken it from people. But he didn't act that way. He didn't act like the leaders that were before him. In fact, if you read a couple of verses on, we find out that Nehemiah actually had a dinner party every single day where he gathered over 150 people to his table and took care of them, both Jewish and non-Jewish alike. This was the man, the leader, Nehemiah. See, we talked about this in Kaleidoscope Church a couple of series ago. It's this idea that we were with people and for people, and that's what leads to life change. Nehemiah is the perfect picture of that. He is with his people, and he is fighting for them. But here's the thing. Doesn't that seem like the exact opposite of most of the leaders that you've encountered in life? I mean, how many of us can sincerely say that all of our leaders have been with us and for us? In fact, when I say leader, a lot of stereotypical images come to mind, right? I mean, a lot of us think that the term boss and leader are synonymous, don't we? And you know, we don't have to look any further than the picture of Michael Scott to know that leader and boss don't necessarily go together, am I right? And for the rest of you who don't know who Michael Scott is, I'll be praying for you to figure that out over the course of the next couple of weeks. Now, Michael Scott's a funny example, but in reality, it's this idea that even if you're smart, even if you're sharp, even if you're decisive, even if you get stuff done, a lot of leaders can still be jerks. And when any of us ever get that authority under our responsibility, we can tend to be that way as well. So, in the midst of that, Jesus said this better than any of us ever could have. And you'll notice he uses the same exact words from Nehemiah chapter 5 when he shares this about what it might look like to lead well in Matthew chapter 20. He said this, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And he says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. See, Jesus knew that the popular form of leadership in his time, it just wasn't working out. And at the very least, it wasn't right. Because when we're real jerks to the people who are leading us, when we just kind of boss them around, sure, maybe stuff will get done, but all that really accomplishes is wearing people out and crushing people's souls and man, what's the point at which you're leading people to a cause, but you're breaking them in the process? we got to not be like that, and Jesus didn't want us to be like that. And so what's really cool is hundreds of years before Jesus even came to this earth, there was this man, Nehemiah, who recognized that being a leader didn't necessarily mean he should just swing around his authority however he wanted to. He recognized in order to lead a community to restoration, you need good posture. The posture of a servant. The posture of putting others before yourselves and then surrendering the outcomes to God, knowing that he is better at accomplishing the work than us. So i got to ask myself, I've got to ask all of us, what type of leader are we? What type of leader are you? Do you need to be the boss to be a leader? Do you need to have a better family, a better job, a better spouse, a better set of life circumstances in order to lead? 
See, because in God's kingdom, leadership is actually flipped upside down. No matter what title we wear, the reality is that the real leaders are the servants, no matter what it looks like from the outside. Our posture matters more than our position. And so what we learn about Nehemiah is he recognizes the difference between moral authority and positional authority. Moral authority and positional authority. So let me line that out for you. What are we talking about when we're talking about moral authority? See, because it's a really fragile thing. It's so important, it carries a lot of weight, but it can break really easy. Andy Stanley said it like this. He said, nothing compensates for a lack of moral authority. No amount of communication skills, wealth, accomplishment, education, talent, or position can make up for a lack of moral authority. We all know plenty of people who have those qualities, but who lack or exercise no influence over us whatsoever. Why? Because there's a contradiction between what they claim to be and what we perceive them to be. Inconsistency between what is said and what is done, it inflicts a mortal wound on a leader's influence. And for this reason, I want you to lean into this. We're going to throw it up on the screen. Moral authority is a fragile thing. It takes a lifetime to earn, but it can be lost in a moment. And once it's lost, it's almost impossible to regain. Now, if you're a parent, a spouse, or a friend, you already knew all of that was true even before I started talking today. You know that once you lose trust from someone, it's kind of like trying to jam toothpaste back in the bottle. It's nearly impossible to do, and doing so, even if you can get there, it's an incredible mess to get there. So, what we're talking about is this idea of if we're going to be someone who has moral authority, if we're going to lead our communities to restoration... We need to know the difference between these two things. We need to know what it means to take a posture of a servant. So this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the difference between positional authority and moral authority. So for starters, positional authority, it's really just a title. It's a title. It's the thing that is on our desk placard. It's the thing we wear on our name tag. It's on the website. It's on the outside of our door. It's a formality. And it really can begin and end there. Now, but moral authority, it's a step beyond that. It's a relationship. It's a, hey, you exercise authority over me because I know you and I trust your character. Said another way, positional authority is an obligation. It's like, hey, I follow you because you could fire me if I didn't follow you, right? And we can act that way with people who we love, with people who we genuinely cherish. We can get in this point where we're just like lording authority over people, but moral authority is trust. It's not I follow you because I have to. It's I follow you because I get to. It's I trust your character. I know you. Why wouldn't I follow you? You have my best intention at heart. I want you to think about it, moral authority, like a piggy bank. We're going to throw up the Toy Story pig here for a second. There he is. He looks great, doesn't he, today? I want you to think about moral authority like a piggy bank. You know, I could remember being a kid, whether it was a glass jar for you or a piggy bank, you would drop the pennies in there all summer, and I would go rolling in at the start of the school year like Warren Buffett into the candy shop with my piggy bank, like, yes, I'm about to get 500 pixie sticks right now, right? That's kind of what moral authority is like. I want you to imagine it. Every time that you put someone else first, Every time you do something you're not obligated to do, every time you do something and don't take credit for it, it's like another nickel, another dime, another quarter goes into the piggy bank. And sure, 
It's hard to perceive things. You look inside and you're thinking to yourself, well, what really is in this piggy bank right now? But when you pick it up, you can feel the weight of moral authority over time. See, moral authority, it's a lot like a piggy bank, though, because it can sit up here on the shelf, but the moment where we have a lapse of character, it falls off and it's shattered. And it takes a while to super glue that thing back together. So, with all that said, What's the path forward? Knowing the weight that is on us as servants to lead our communities to restoration. And I'll say it like this. If we want to make a difference, and not just to pat ourselves on the back, but to make a supreme difference in the communities where we live, work, and play, the communities that God loves so much more than we love them, we need to lead from the posture of a servant. We need to lead from the posture of a servant, and that happens through the patient buildup of moral authority. And so Nehemiah, he leans in. He fights with his people and for his people. He lowers himself, and when it's all said and done, the walls of Jerusalem are restored. And it's an incredible thing. This city that was in shambles receives back a piece of the dignity that it once had as a city set apart to be an example of God's relationship with his people. But if you're paying attention to the whole story of Nehemiah, you'll recognize this. It was never about him. It was about everyone. See, Nehemiah wasn't out there slugging a hammer, doing it by himself. It was the people together that restored what was broken. And from that point on, it was a party. It was incredible. The result of all this hard work just led to joyous celebration in the city of Jerusalem. And there's this whole section of the book of Nehemiah devoted to it that I'm going to summarize a lot of it right here. This is from Nehemiah 12. I'm going to hop all over the place so you can follow it on the screen. It says, At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving and with music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. The musicians were also brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the word that starts within that I've tried to pronounce all week, from Beth Gilgal, from the area of Jeba and Asmaveth, For all the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. To verse 31, I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. I also assigned two large choirs to give thanks. One was to proceed to the top of the wall to the right. Seven verses later, the second choir proceeded in the opposite direction. I followed them on top of the wall. The two choirs that gave thanks then took their place in the house of God. So did I together, together, together with half the officials as well as the priests. And this is so cool. And on that day, they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. And this blew my mind. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard from far away. You ever heard that passage, you are the light of the world, a city on a hill can't be hidden? It's about Jerusalem. It was a city on a hill. And so if something incredible happened in Jerusalem and there was a celebration, the entire region would know about it. This restoration that was a team effort, it didn't just lead to the blessing of Jerusalem, it led to the blessing of an entire region, all because one guy was willing to take the posture of a servant. Now, can I be real for a second? Growing up, I totally would have fallen asleep while I was reading those passages. (laughs) And I mean, to be clear, we cut it down from 20 verses to like six because I didn't want to put you all through that as well. But every name 
every group, every title, every last piece of it, including Nehemiah the servant, is so significant to the story of Jerusalem's walls being rebuilt. And this got me to thinking. I feel like God spoke this to me. Don't we all want to be Nehemiah? Don't we all want to be the noble, the cupbearer to the king, the governor of the region who leads the people in a faithful procession to do something incredible? But then I started thinking to myself, but what if, what if our story and our peace in the story was meant to be something different? What if God asked me to be a member of the choir? And what about you? So I wonder, I was thinking about this, if God invited you or me to be a bench warmer on his team, would we have the humility to say yes? Would we have the humility to take a lesser role in God's work of restoring our community so that we could be one step closer to being the people in the community of blessing that God has called us to be? Sure, we all want that mountaintop experience. We all want to shout from the hills of what God has done, what he's done through us, what he's done through us, the leader. But can we honestly say that our posture matters more than our position. And I'll get back to you when I can honestly answer that question. God wants us to be a blessing to the communities where we live, work, and play. I wanted to say that God needs us to be a blessing to the communities where we live, work, and play, but that would be a lie. God does not need us. God can do anything. God decides and God blesses us with the opportunity to make a difference in the places where we live places that he loves and is bought by the blood of his son, Jesus. So last Sunday, something that we've really leaned into in all of our groups and we've been asking our small groups to do is to use this BLESS acronym in their time of prayer during their groups. And again, this is what we mean when we're talking about that. The idea of blessing our community is the idea of beginning with prayer, listening to the people in our lives, inviting people over to dinner and eating together, rolling up our sleeves and serving, and then ultimately sharing the story of how God has impacted our lives and how he could impact others as well. And so I'm sitting on the first night of the week on my couch, and I get this text message from one of our group leaders here at first, and it's a picture of a paper plate that's been passed around from person to person to person. And the group leader shared for the first time ever, every single person in their group prayed, and this time specifically that they would be a blessing to the places where we live, work, and pray, whether that meant beginning with prayer, listening to someone, eating with someone, serving or sharing the story. And I gotta tell you, I mean, being a part of worship with you all is incredible. Being able to praise God and celebrate and clap our hands in unison, that's one thing, but to know when you go and sit around your dining room tables and your living rooms, that you're taking the time to think about how God might bless our community, I mean, that hit me like a ton of bricks. That's making a huge difference. And so i got to ask you, whether you're a part of a group or not, how hard would it be to ask ourselves this question every week, who did I bless this week? Who did I bless this week? If it's not with your group, although there are plenty of opportunities for you to hop into that, maybe it's with your family. Maybe it's with a friend. Maybe you're so isolated that you just need to message someone on Facebook or text someone to hold yourself accountable. What would it look like to honestly ask ourselves, Who am I blessing? And here's the cool part. You may feel so small and insignificant, like you don't matter to God's story, but there is no one so small and insignificant that God cannot use you to bless our communities. I mean, come on. 
Anyone can begin with prayer. Anyone can get on their knees or sit on their bench or whatever that looks like and pray that God would open doors for us to be a blessing to others. And we see that all throughout the entire New Testament. Groups of Christians praying, God, would you please open a door so that we could be a blessing to people and share the story that is more powerful than any other story in the entire world. Would you begin with prayer? See, God is calling others of us to simply listen. And I'm the chief offender here, but do you realize that the most annoying people in our lives are the most likely opportunities for God to bless the world so thoroughly through us? I mean, you ever have this dialogue running around in your head? Ugh, she never stops complaining. Oh my goodness, he is so negative. Oh my gosh, if I have to hear one more time about your family, I'm going to gouge my eyeballs out, right? This happens at work and at our kitchen tables, quite frankly, every single day, am I right? If we're just being real for a second. Now, come on, if there was one time where we had the perspective shift for just a moment to lean in and say, you know what, something significant's going on here. Something different is happening. And I want to challenge you to do this. Could you one time this week when that person inevitably starts going on their diatribe about how horrible their life is, would you lean in and listen? And if they ever stop talking, would you just look at them and say, I am so sorry, and lean back in and listen some more? Man, I think our communities would be vastly different if people who are marked by the Holy Spirit would be the presence of the Holy Spirit with the people where they live, work, and play. And all of us can do that. See, God is inviting some of us to take it even a step further. In a fast food TV dinner culture, God wants us to invite people over for dinner. And man, is Jesus a great example of that. The night of his betrayal, when he was about to go to a Roman cross, he found time to eat dinner with his best friends. Man. And if you think about that for just a moment, what would it look like in your life if you found and God placed on your part an isolated person and just took an opportunity to lean in and invite them over for dinner. I'm no cook. I do really well at ramen noodles, but that's about it. But as far as that goes, the biggest blessing in our entire family's life the last two weeks has been inviting an old friend of ours over who had just moved back to Champaign County and has been isolated from Christian community and just had our friend over for dinner. It did more for me than it did for them, I guarantee it. But it's a way that God is breathing his Holy Spirit through us to be a blessing, and all you got to do is set out an extra dish at the table. God's inviting some of us to invite someone over to eat. But the last thing we got to do is we got to roll up our sleeves and serve. People in our communities need to see that Jesus in us is making a difference where we live, work, and play. And I am so proud of our church and even our small groups for the way they've been leaning into that. So check out this video for a second. Hey, this is the Hurley's group doing our cleaning box. Oh. From Homer, Catlin, Champagne, and St. Joe. Thank you guys very much. With Jacob's group from St. Joseph, and we love our community.
so pumped to be able to be bringing you this video. I'm Mercy and this is Katie Dye with ICM. Our groups have been doing a super, super cool um, thing lately by partnering with ICM to make baskets for families who are going to be going into new homes and we have just been so blessed and so thankful for all the support. So Katie, if you wouldn't mind just saying a few things. Yeah, we are so excited at ICM to be getting these baskets. We know that they're gonna be such a blessing to these families and it's just such an awesome way to celebrate with them as they feel really great about what they've accomplished and all they've gone through to get into their housing and we are so excited that we're gonna be able to bless them with these baskets and it's just thanks to you guys and your willingness to just love on your community and kind of circle around your family. So we're really excited and really thankful that you guys um, were able to accomplish this. So I am grateful for you all. I'm incredibly proud of you all. Um, but the reason why we share a video like that isn't to pat people on the back and say, oh, look at us, look at us, bless our community. The thing that we're doing here is we want you to understand what can happen when we lean in enough and just say yes to God when he asks us, will you be a blessing? And incredible things can start to happen. And so with that in mind, God's work through us is just beginning. I think a lot of you know that today is our trunk or treat in the Salt and Light parking lot in Urbana. And what we know is that a lot of local schools have been invited to bring their kiddos out, and there'll be parents and kids there from the Urbana School District, and we've got a number of cars that are just going to be out there sharing candy and being a decent presence to people in our community. So that's happening from 4 to 6 o'clock tonight, and I know a number of you are going to be there with us, but can I just ask you to do me a favor? I want us to take this practical step of being a blessing to heart. And no matter what you're doing, whether you're there or not, sometime from 4 to 6 o'clock tonight, I just want you to stop for a moment and pray that God would use us to be a blessing to our community. That it wouldn't be about us. That it wouldn't be about us getting a pat on the back or having a good emotional feeling. But that God would sincerely open up doors for us to be a blessing as a church. That we would genuinely make a difference in our community. That if our church wasn't around, our community would feel it and they would miss it. So again, God wants to mobilize us to be a blessing to our community. Even tonight, would you begin with prayer? So really, the heart of Nehemiah is this incredible example, and we want to follow that. We want to form a heart like that. But more than anything else, it's important for us to realize that the heart that we're after more than anything else is the heart of Jesus. You know, there's this point in the New Testament where Paul gets to talking about who Jesus is and the reality of who he is when you stand him up next to everything. And if we're being honest, if there was a single person who should get first dibs on anything, it would be Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation, Paul says. Everything was made in, through, and by Jesus. And by Jesus, everything is held together. Man, if there is someone who deserves to be first, it is someone like that. But guess what? That is not Jesus' character. He's not like that. Instead, he rolls up his sleeves and serves, at the very least, and sets an example for us to follow that we might serve like him. So today, I want to do something a little bit different. Um, if you're able, I want to invite you to stand in this moment. 
And we're going to take an opportunity, just stand for a moment, and we're going to read a passage that was a song that was sung in the early church. It's this picture of Jesus the servant. And when we listen to these words, the purpose that it's been from the very earliest stages of the church was that we would become the type of servant that Jesus was, that we would take on his character, that we would be like him. And so whether or not you're a close your eyes and pray type of person, or if you are just keep your eyes open type of person, would you just maybe even extend your hands out like this? And I wanna receive these words that we have been reciting for thousands of years in the church as a word that would form us into being the servants that Jesus has called us to be. Paul wrote it like this in the book of Philippians. In your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you're newer to first, we use this time to respond to who God is. And we're going to do a few things to do that. Uh, if you've come prepared to be generous as a member of first, or if God is putting that prompting on your heart, whether you use that Give app that Aaron was talking about earlier, or you go to the Give and Respond boxes, those Give and Respond boxes, two in the back, two near the front doors of the auditorium. We want to be generous to the mission of Jesus because we believe it requires our everything. And that human hearts and lives and futures are just worth it. So that's why we give. If you have a connection card that you filled out in any way, feel free to fold that up and drop it in the give and respond boxes as well. Something else that we're going to do is we're going to take a moment to come before God in prayer. If you feel convicted, even hearing those words, that every knee ought to bow at the name of Jesus, maybe today is an opportunity for you to kneel at one of these prayer benches in the front of the stage and ask Jesus to make him like you. Maybe we could take the posture of our servant Jesus and take a moment for him to form us in prayer during this time of response. But finally, we are going to put Jesus at the center because that's where he belongs. And we're going to celebrate communion. There are six tables surrounding the room. When you're ready, if you have a relationship with Jesus and you believe he is your Lord and Savior, I want you to take the little emblems, the little piece of bread, the little cup of juice, and remember that it is because of Jesus' body and blood that we can serve and that we can lead to the restoration of our communities. So whatever that looks like, I pray that we would just remember this. When we take the posture of a servant and we remember that that's far more important than our position, we'll be better situated than ever before to share the story that Jesus is alive and that he's changed everything. Let's respond to Jesus in this time.